Coming up next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, a doctor of physical therapy provides an overview of the actual benefits of exercise. Exercise is a lot harder than taking a pill. That takes a half a minute or a minute. Exercise takes time. A medical student talks about a new course where students learn about nutrition and how food is medicine. When you prescribe somebody a medication, there's more than just can they afford it. We don't always touch on the fact that food can be a very similar thing that somebody might not be able to access in itself. And a cancer researcher talks about the origins of cancer. Well, I think that this question of aging and cancer is one of those questions that we need to examine in more depth. All that, plus a selection from The Healing Muse, right after the news. This is Upstate Medical University's HealthLink on Air, your chance to explore health, science, and medicine with the experts from Central New York's only academic medical center. I'm your host, Amber Smith. Today, we'll find out about a new nutrition course in which medical students learn how food is medicine. Then, we'll talk with a cancer researcher about the origins of cancer. But first, in case you're beginning the new year with a fitness resolution, we'll learn about the benefits you can expect to achieve through exercise. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. We know how to lower a person's risk of diabetes, heart disease, and obesity, and it's not a pill. It's exercise. Here with me in the HealthLink on Air studio to explain what science says about the benefits of exercise is Karen Chemis. She's a doctor of physical therapy, a registered nurse, and a certified diabetes educator at Upstate. Welcome back to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Chemis. Thank you. It's great to be here. Now, how do we know that exercise actually reduces the risk of diabetes, heart disease? How do we know that it, it is the reason that we can reduce obesity? There's so much research that supports this, and it's not new research. It's been around for decades. We know that being physically active or exercising helps our body to use our energy better and makes the heart work stronger helps decrease our weight or helps to maintain weight loss. And all those things contribute to decreasing risks of those various things you mentioned. Are there studies that look sort of at the opposite in terms of like whether sedentary behavior increases the risk? There are. And this has come to light more in the last few years. As we have sat more, doing our work, doing leisure activities. You know, we sit a lot during the day. So research has really looked at this. So probably three or four years ago, the diabetes recommendations specifically introduced decreasing sedentary time. And the original recommendation was to get up every 90 minutes. I found that to be a long stretch of time. The next year and since then, it's been to get up every 30 minutes. And that's really what we see. We shouldn't sit for longer than 30 minutes at a time. So when you say get up, just literally get up and walk around? Or like, what what do you need to do when you get up? Get out of the sitting position. So to stand up, to walk around, both are great. Even standing to do work at a standing desk or you know, to stand at a kitchen counter and read something will be better for us than sitting, doing the same thing. Well, we've got a lot of, like you've mentioned, um, good information out there about the benefits of exercise. But have we seen that people are taking that to heart and increasing their activity level? Unfortunately, no. We still have the statistics that many Americans do not meet the exercise recommendations. And I think part of that comes from uh, the idea that knowledge doesn't necessarily create behavior change. So we can know something's helpful, but that doesn't make it any easier for us to do. So when I work with people talking about increasing exercise, most people know it's good to do 30 minutes of exercise or physical activity most days of the week but it's really hard to transition that into actually doing it. Exercise is a lot harder than taking a pill. That takes a half a minute or a minute. Exercise takes time. So it's tough to get people to hit those recommendations. 
We've mentioned exercise and physical activity. Are, are they the same thing? They're very similar. But the true definition is physical activity is any movement of the body. It could include housework, yard work, child care, work activities, recreational activities. Exercise is a category of physical activity, and there's a small difference. Exercise is when we do something, we plan it, and it ultimately has a health goal. So for example, if I say, I'm going to walk to the drugstore and get some milk, and it takes me a mile to do that, that would be considered a physical activity. If I say I'm going to walk at the park for a mile to help my heart get stronger, that's exercise. You can see we're splitting hairs. So which is the best? Whatever an individual wants to and can do. So there could be people who are physically active or have a physically active job or just are, are busy all day with physical activity. Absolutely. Do, and do then, they still need exercise on top of that? No. When I work with somebody, basically what I say is, you're physically active. Are you meeting your health goals? Are you meeting what you'd like to hit? And if they're not, then maybe it's worth adding in some exercise. But absolutely, some people do enough walking during the day or moving around that it makes up for it. Activity trackers have gotten pretty common, and it's interesting to see when people use them. Sometimes they'll say, I can't believe how much I move around during the day that I didn't realize, and other people are shocked by how little they might move around. So that helps to quantify things. So how much exercise or physical activity does one need in order to get all the benefits? The recommendations really continue to be 150 minutes per week of moderate exercise or 75 weeks of vigorous exercise. 75 minutes. Per week, of, yes. Okay. Yep. And that can be broken down, and that's actually a really important thing. A lot of us think that we have to do 30 minutes all at once, and that's not the case. It can be broken up during the day. As soon as we've done about five minutes of physical activity or exercise at a moderate pace, we already get most of the benefits. So if people struggle to get a big chunk of time in, they can piece it together. So that 150 minutes of moderate exercise or physical activity during the week could be done in bouts of an hour, 45 minutes, 30 minutes, 10 minutes, even five minutes. So even five minutes would be beneficial. Yes, the heart health starts to come in in five minutes. We're always burning calories when we're active, so that helps with weight. Um, all the benefits really happen by five minutes. Now, does more exercise give you more benefit? It does. And a lot of us look at exercise or physical activity as a way to lose or maintain weight loss. And unfortunately, the data for that shows that we need about 60 minutes per day of moderate activity or exercise. So more is better. Of course, there is a too much. Sometimes if people get so occupied by needing to do a lot, um, you know, they can get into health problems or um, create some negative situations. But for the most part, we should aim for 30 to 60 minutes most days of the week. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking about the benefits of exercise with Doctor of Physical Therapy, Karen Chemis. Now, we mentioned that um, the recommendation for adults is 150 minutes per week of moderate or 75 minutes per week of vigorous. Does that apply to children as well, or, or do we, they have their own set of... They have their own set. They do. Children and teens, the recommendations are 60 minutes of moderate to vigorous exercise most days of the week, as well as exercises and activities that include muscle strengthening. So if we think about it, it's really playing and being active. You know, playing in gym class and getting on monkey bars and running and jump roping, all of those things come into play. But the goal really is 60 minutes most days of the week. So what are the best exercises? What, what matters the most in terms of aerobic strength, balance? What are, what are the ones that matter the most? I think for many years, the aerobic exercise can be the most important. But by midlife and into the latter years, my belief is that strength is most important. 
we can maintain independence and do our activities best if we have good strength. And strength is really the basis for aerobic exercise. So for example, if an individual struggles to stand from a chair or climb a step, they'll tend to be less active. Therefore, they're not going to get their aerobic activity. So really, the strength exercises and strengthening activities are so important. And you mentioned balance. Strength in the lower extremities or the legs is a huge component of balance. So our balance and decreased fall risk will be better if we do strengthening activities. So strengthening, I think of weightlifting, is that are there other things besides weightlifting? That's a great way to do it, but fortunately there are other things because everybody doesn't want to get to the gym or know how to safely do strength training. So I just mentioned standing up from a chair. If we can try to stand from a chair without using our arms, we've done a great leg exercise. If that's too hard, even trying to sit without using our arms until necessary makes our leg muscles work. And that's the same movement we use to climb a stair, to go up and down from curbs, so many things that are important in our life. I just mentioned climbing stairs. If we can try to climb stairs during our normal daily life, we will stay strong in our legs and be able to climb stairs well. So it can be something as simple as that or going to a gym and doing a strength training program. Are there exercises that provide benefit for someone who's mobility impaired? Yeah, so we really look at what the individual's abilities are. A lot of people have pain, and it never helps to increase joint pain during exercise. That will work against us. So as a physical therapist, one of my biggest jobs is to work with individuals, determine what challenges they have as far as mobility or painful conditions, and try to find the appropriate exercise or activity that suits them. So somebody may struggle with walking. It might cause back pain or hip pain or knee pain, but they might be great when they're sitting for example, on a stationary bike. So that may be a better type of exercise. Some people can do standing aerobic exercise. Others may need to do sitting aerobic exercise. So it's really finding the perfect thing for that individual to not increase any problems and to get maximal benefits. So really no one can say that they can't do it. They just need to find the right thing that they can do. Exactly. I can almost always work with an individual to determine what they can do when they go home. Now, does it matter uh, what time of day you exercise? I know you said that we can break it up throughout the day, but is it better or is there more benefit by getting up and exercising first before you start your day or at the end of the day? This is pretty individualized too. There are some studies that show if somebody does a bit of physical activity after each meal, specifically their blood glucose has come down. So people with diabetes should think about that, but it does give us an idea that if we eat our food and then we do a 10 or 15 minute walk shortly afterwards, we'll help to utilize that food for fuel so it's not hanging around in our system. Having said that, Probably the best time that people will routinely fit it in is in the morning. The earlier day in the day we can exercise, the more likely it is to happen. I suspect many of us realize that as the day ends with our work day or other activities, time gets away from us and it's pretty easy to go home, have dinner, and want to sit and relax. So I think it's tough to fit it in late in the day for a lot of people. But the bottom line is the best time is whenever an individual will do the exercise uh, routinely when they most enjoy or least dislike doing it. <laughs> now, most medications come with side effects or possible risks. Are there any downsides to exercise? Yes, I mean, we can get injured with exercise, so it's really important to pay attention to our body. There's some Soreness that can come in the muscles, especially from strengthening exercise, if it doesn't get in the way of our normal activities, if it goes away within a day or two, that's okay. I mentioned earlier, increasing joint pain is not helpful, but the appropriate exercise, working the muscles around that joint, can actually decrease the pain. So it's really important to pick the exercise that doesn't cause any problems and to pay attention to your body. Um, the other thing, you know, there's the symptoms of 
bad things like having a heart attack. So if somebody feels ill or doesn't feel well while they're exercising, if they get dizzy, lightheaded, have pain, unusual shortness of breath, they should absolutely stop that exercise or activity and potentially call 911 to get help. And people who are just starting an exercise regimen, um, I've always heard, you know, check with your doctor first. Is that really, you really do need to do that? Fortunately, most of us don't because that's a barrier too. So the general recommendations are if we're going to do an exercise program that's similar to the intensity of our normal daily activities, we can just get started. So if I decide I'm going to start a walking program and I do that at a pace that I'd walk through a grocery store or I'd walk to go from work to my car, then I just need to get started with that. If it's an exercise that's more vigorous than what we're accustomed to, and especially if somebody has some medical issues, then they should check with their healthcare provider and get checked out and help get focused on the right type of exercise, and most importantly, the right intensity, because that's what can help us the most or hurt us the most. Well, thank you to Karen Kimmis, a doctor of physical therapy and a certified diabetes educator. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Next on Upstate's HealthLink on Air, food is medicine, and now it's a medical school course. From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. A new elective at Upstate Medical University teaches medical students about how food affects our health. It's called Food is Medicine, and here to talk with me about it is uh, Natalie Antosh. She's a fourth-year medical student. Welcome, Natalie. Thank you for having me. So how did this elective come to be? Um, yeah, so this elective came to be because... Uh, so I'm a fourth year medical student now, and uh, kind of as I was going through my first three years of medical school, I kept on wondering when I was going to learn about the practical implications of nutrition on patients' health. Um, didn't feel like I really had a strong base in it going into my clinical year. Um, and then as patients kind of started asking me questions about how they can lose weight and how they can affect uh, how they can decrease their cholesterol through their diet as opposed to just taking medications, I realized I didn't have the answers for them. So I approached the curriculum office here at Upstate and uh, we worked together to create this elective. So it's an elective in place now for, yeah. for uh, medical students to yeah. take? So it's for first, second, and fourth year medical students because third year students just don't really have the time in their schedule. Okay. Mm-hmm. Now what's included in the course? Is it, does it focus, is it like a nutrition course that a registered dietitian might take or? Yeah, so we basically um, got together with some faculty here at Upstate. So originally um, I was working with Dr. Beth Nelson, uh, Dr. Barbara Forstein, and Dr. Susan Levinson as well, who are all um, Upstate faculty. And then we also collaborated with Dr. Kay Bruning over at um, Syracuse University's nutrition department. Uh, and she focuses on medical nutrition. Um, and so basically we created a series of online lectures um, looking at the implications of nutrition on things like diabetes, obesity, um, cancer, pediatrics and pregnancy, food insecurity, and recorded it, had faculty members um, record these lectures. And then we also did some uh, like hands-on activities like volunteering at a food bank, or the food pantry, or soup kitchen, shadowing a dietitian, so we get to see what a dietitian's role is um, in the healthcare system as well. Um, we did a teaching kitchen over at Syracuse University, where students got to uh, learn how to cook healthy and affordable meals. Um, and we also did like um, a session on motivational interviewing, and we ended the the elective with a potluck and some uh, mindful eating uh, going along with it. So that was pretty cool. Is it a popular elective? So we had enough spots. Um, we had to get funding for the teaching kitchen, and so we were able to ha- fund enough uh, for 20 students. And so the course started this fall, this September, and ended just a couple weeks ago. And within 24 hours, all 20 spots filled up. 
So pretty popular. (laughs) Well, um, besides it being something that students are interested in, why does a course like this belong in medical school? Yeah, so a lot of um, patients come to their doctor seeking nutrition information. A lot of people are looking how they can lose weight effectively, um, how they can manage their high blood pressure, diabetes, um, high cholesterol, with diet modification. And I think it's really important for doctors to know this information um, so that they can give their patients some uh, preliminary information before going to see a dietitian if they need to. Um, insurance doesn't always cover people to see a dietitian. So, for example, it's difficult for somebody who's labeled as pre diabetic to have insurance cover um, a dietitian visit. And they, their insurance doesn't cover until they officially are labeled as diabetic, at which point it's kind of, it's not too late, but if you catch them in pre-diabetes, if you switch um, their diet, they might be able to prevent becoming diabetic to begin wow. with. So more preventive. Yeah. Do, do you know, do a lot of medical schools offer courses like this? So unfortunately not uh, too many. So only... Less than 20% of medical schools in the country have a required nutrition course at their school, um, and most schools struggle to have uh, like a minimum of 20 hours of nutrition curriculum within their medical schools. So unfortunately, it's, uh, it's definitely lacking within our med school curriculums throughout the country, um, but I think that there's becoming a lot more press on it and that people are starting to realize its importance. Well, in terms of doctor-patient interaction, What are the types of diseases? I mean, I guess weight loss comes to mind as something where if a patient had, you know, wanted to lose weight, maybe they would turn to the doctor and ask about what types of things they should be eating. What other health issues would um, be affected by food? So really a lot of things can be affected by food. Um, We know that um, diabetes is heavily affected by what you eat. Um, so looking into that as well as high blood pressure, we know that the DASH diet has been, um, is an evidence-based diet that helps people lower their blood pressure, um, significantly without even any medications. So remind us, what is the DASH diet? That stands for something, right? Yeah. So that stands for the dietary approach stopping hypertension. Okay. Yeah. So, um, basically if people are able to change their diet in a particular way, um, we know that it can decrease their blood pressure, I think, by like 8 to 14 um, like blood pressure points, which is pretty significant. So it can have a big impact on, in that. Mm-hmm. So diabetes, um, obesity, there's other chronic diseases that can be managed at least somewhat with food-based. Yeah, so we also know that um, the Mediterranean diet is very evidence-based um, to help decrease cardiovascular uh, risk factors as well. Um and also, we know that a lot of foods can be like pro-inflammatory, um, so a lot of autoimmune diseases can be uh, implicated as well with that. So it's one thing to be able to say, you know, oh, follow the DASH diet or the Mediterranean diet, but it's another to be able to explain what you mean by that. Mm-hmm. What, what are you going to be eating more of? What are you going to be eating less of, mm-hmm. right? Eating a lot more veggies. <laughs> Let me remind listeners, this is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking about a medical school course called Food is Medicine with fourth-year Upstate medical student Natalie Antosh. So what is food insecurity? So food insecurity um, is basically not having access to healthy foods or food in general, um, enough to feed you and your family. Um, And so we see this time and time again with a lot of our patients here um, within the Syracuse community. Um, We know that the inner city of Syracuse is uh, a very big food desert, and a lot of people don't have access to healthy foods within the community. Um, And in fact, a lot of medical students here at Upstate struggle with food insecurity as well. Um, And so that's something we also touched on in the um, course is talking about what, uh, how people in Syracuse struggle with food insecurity, how the Central New York Food Bank um, helps with that problem as well, and what role physicians can play in that as well. So it's more than just, you may have a patient who wants to eat right, but ha- doesn't have the means to either, they don't have the money or they live in an area that doesn't have 
a grocery store that they can access. Right. Or they can't, they have to travel really far and don't have a car and have to take multiple buses to get to the grocery store. Or they work multiple jobs and have children and have to worry about childcare and can't take the time to go necessarily travel all that way. And so physicians need to know that. That's like a part of their social history, I guess, right? Yeah, absolutely. Um, that's definitely something we learn about in regards to, um, you know, when you prescribe somebody a medication, there's more than just whether they want to take it or not. Can they afford it? Can they uh, get to a pharmacy in order to pick up the medication? But we don't always touch on the fact that food can be a very similar thing that somebody might not be able to access in itself. Um, and then not being able to access those healthy foods already predisposes people to a lot of these chronic metabolic diseases like obesity and hypertension, diabetes. I hear complaints that there's not enough time as it is during a patient appointment, you know, for physicians to, to get to everything they want to get to. How are they going to fit in a conversation about nutrition? Yeah, so I think it's definitely a challenging thing to bring up, but also an important thing. Um it's definitely true that physicians are limited to a certain amount of time, um, but I think that incorporating it in a way that either um, the nurses or medical assistants are able to screen people for um, food insecurity or food-related issues um, can definitely be helpful. Um, and also just trying to prioritize it and also having some um, like literature available for people so that you can bring up the topic and bring up its importance and then have some information on how patients um, can go about making these changes so that they have it uh, to read at home as well, I think can be useful. How important do you think it is for patients to be able to cook? Yeah, so we know that um, in regards to sodium intake, like 60% at least of sodium intake comes from processed um, foods and restaurant uh, cooked foods. So a lot less of it is really coming from the salt you add from cooking at home. Um, and so many people really struggle with high blood pressure, which is uh, your sodium intake directly impacts that. So I think that it's really important for people to take the time to cook if they're able to um, and really have control over what they're putting into their bodies because um, it has a huge impact on their health in general. Of course, it's difficult to take the time to cook, um, but things like crock pots and slow cookers uh, definitely can be helpful so that you don't have to take so much time out of your day or meal prepping at the beginning of the week. Is there a need for um, specialty doctors or surgeons to be concerned with a patient's diet, or is this the type of thing that would come up in a primary care visit? I think it's uh, definitely relevant to everybody it is especially relevant to primary care in regards to things like obesity and diabetes, hypertension, um, but those things can also really uh, have an effect on everybody um, and all specialties. Um, for example, if somebody's a gastroenterologist um, and they have a patient with ulcerative colitis, their patient's diet is definitely going to have an impact on their inflammatory bowel disease. Um, in regards to surgeons, we know that depending on somebody's diet, they can heal faster um, from a surgery or from um, things like that. So it is relevant. I think in the hospital, though, a lot of dietitians uh, on the surgical units are helping patients eat appropriately for, um, for appropriate healing. So, Well, after helping design this course and taking this course yourself... Um, have you learned anything? Oh, yeah, I've learned a lot. <laughs> uh, I, I created this course because I really wanted to learn a lot, and I, I talked to a lot of students. I actually sent out a, uh, like a needs assessment survey through the different Facebook groups um, of all the medical school classes, and 100 students responded, and overwhelmingly students were saying that they felt that their nutrition education uh, was lacking, um, and they felt it was inadequate and that they would be interested in taking a course like this uh, to learn more about it. So, yeah, I've definitely learned a ton from taking this course. <laughs> in, uh, high school, you know, health class might touch on nutrition a little bit, and then you go to college, and you may not learn anything that has anything to do with nutrition in college, depending on what track you're on. Mm -hmm. So you're right, probably a lot of people come into medical school with not a whole lot of background other yeah. than they've been eating their whole life. Yeah, but absolutely. Were you uh, yourself confident in the kitchen before taking this class? Did you Do you feel like you were making good choices um, with what you ate? And 
Yeah, so I personally find cooking to be very relaxing. So it was uh, something that I did throughout medical school to kind of help me uh, relax after or take a break from studying and things like that. So for me, uh, I just really love food uh, and I really like to cook. Um, so personally, yes, but I know that that's not always a common thing among medical students and that a lot of people don't have the same sentiment and don't find it relaxing and have difficulty finding the time to, to do it. Um, so it's definitely a skill that I learned um, and that I learned to enjoy. Well, thank you so much for sharing this with us. Yeah. Thank you to Natalie Antaj. She's a fourth-year medical student at Upstate Medical University. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. Coming up next, how cancer begins. You're listening to Upstate's HealthLink on Air. Medical University in Syracuse, New York. I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. My guest is a renowned researcher who is at Upstate to give the Carol M. Baldwin Breast Cancer Research Lecture. She has a new way of thinking about cancer that some describe as hopeful. Dr. Mina Bissell was trained as a chemist at Harvard before going on to earn a master's in bacteriology and biochemistry and a doctorate in microbiology and molecular genetics. Today, she is the Distinguished Senior Scientist and a Senior Advisor to the Laboratory Director at the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory in Berkeley, California. Welcome to HealthLink on Air, Dr. Bissell. Thank you. Your work seems to be changing the answer to the question, what is cancer? How do you answer that question? Well, I'm not sure anybody actually could completely understand cancer because I think cancer is a problem of aging more than anything else. It is true that young children could get cancer or people with mutations and inherited mutation get are younger and get cancer. But really cancer mainly is goes up logarithmically, logarithmically as people age. And I, uh, my research actually has shed some light about the uh, things, the mechanism by which uh, we actually become more susceptible to cancer as we age. Interesting. Now, I, I, I've heard about a theory that a single oncogene or cancer cell um, is sufficient to cause cancer. Is that still a theory or is that, has that been disproven? Well, there are still people who believed because of mouse studies and uh, where they take a very, very potent oncogene and uh, or oncogene means a cancer gene and uh, they inject that into a mouse or they make an engineered mouse with these potent oncogenes and the mouse gets tumors. But even under those circumstances, when you have... Uh, injected the, or at least inserted the gene of the cancer virus into the animal, they still get local tumors. So it tells you that a single oncogene is not enough. And in human tumor, we, um, I argue, and I think people, um, I think at times have exaggerated too much that we don't need any mutation to get cancer. And in all honesty, I haven't seen a tumor that doesn't have mutation. Why insist on that? You know, they have mutation. Now, whether or not the first event needs to be a mutation, um, I could believe that the first event could also be just aging, which of course causes things to change, but also that the whole microenvironment of the cells in your body changes position, they do things that they didn't do as a young person. And if we in fact know that we could take very uh, younger uh, people's skin and put, um, and graft, you know, if they have burned or something, 
it takes very well. If you take the aging people's skin, it is still works, but it sort of uh, has problem. It doesn't. It doesn't go as well. It doesn't look as uh, as well as as somebody who is you know somebody who is much younger. So I think that this question of aging and cancer is one of those questions that we need to um, examine more in more depth. And there are a number of people, quite a few people who are doing it. But I think at times they argue that you have to have either cancer or death of the cells as you get older. I don't know if I should explain what I mean by uh, by the death of the cell. It's uh, called cell apoptosis, death? cell oh. death, yes, okay. cell death. Uh, cell death or apo- we call it apoptosis. And um, so that's, that's one part of it. But there's also um, possibility that the microenvironment uh, that is around, say, a single epithelial breast cell um, could be changing because of aging, because of sickness, because of uh, too much radiation, because of all these events that we see in the environment, because of bad um, chemicals in, in the ocean or in your city or whatever. But it is true that, um, at least I believe, because of my work, that until the architecture of the organ that you're talking about starts changing its shape and its architecture, you still look as if you're normal. For example, if they took uh, uh, a biopsy from my breast, or even a 16-year-old boy who, uh, from his prostate, if they... Uh, unfortunately, had had an accident, you know, and people look at the prostate of a 16-year-old kid, and they are full of mutation. And as you and I are sitting here, we both have tremendous amount of mutation, and and I have a lot more than you do because I'm older. (laughs) And uh, and these these are eventually give rise to cancer. And uh, I... I'll usually argue that um, we have some, somewhere between 30 to 70 trillion cells. I have no idea who counted them, but, but trillion, yeah? And they all have the same genetic information. And the idea is, why is your nose your nose and your mouth your mouth? And that has something to do with what I have discovered and that is the role of extracellular matrix. So before we get into ECM, extracellular matrix, tell me again or define for me what a microenvironment is. Mm-hmm. Is that just what surrounds a cell? Um, anything around the cell uh, that is outside the cell is its microenvironment. So and for- even- all of these trillions of cells in our body, do they all have the same microenvironment because Not they're in the same all. body? Not oh. at all. And that's the whole important discovery, right? So, so we all have the skin in uh, all of our body. Uh, but if they look carefully at the skin in your nose as opposed to the skin in your finger, um, they have the same genetic information but they have very different kind of proteins. And those proteins shape the final destiny, if you will, of the, of the cells under those conditions. And I always argue, and I think people have begun to believe this, uh, although in the old days you would treat cancer with um, very, very toxic material, and they would use the same toxic material for breast cancer, liver cancer, prostate cancer, etc. And now uh, I, we have become smarter, and we begin to think that the liver cancer is a different beast than a prostate cancer. Or, or you know, they have similarities. They do share certain things, 
but they are not the same. So cancer is an organ-specific disease. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, and I'm talking about how cancer forms with Dr. Mina Bissell, who is visiting Upstate from the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory in California. So you mentioned the extracellular matrix. Is that part of the microenvironment? Yes, it is part of the microenvironment, and these are very large, insoluble proteins that the cell itself secretes. But is not every cell is not secreting the same kind of extracellular matrix. They secrete different kind of material, and that those differences helps the maintenance of what we call organ specificity. So for your breast, you make milk, and these things help to allow that. For your eyes, you have um, whatever eyes has, (laughs) or for your skin, you have melanin and, you know, all these things. So um, for liver, you have albumin, and um, so, so... that specificity is maintained and provided by the work that the extracellular matrix does in combination with growth factors. Do cancer cells have the ability to break free of their microenvironment and not follow what the microenvironment wants to dictate? Well, I believe that, um, that the only time that happens is when, uh, uh, well, of course, you know, we have what we call metastasis, but that's when... Where, that's when it spreads. Yes, that's when it spreads. And we now know that these cells spread a lot earlier than we thought before, unfortunately. Uh, in other words, it's not until the tumor gets at a certain size. We now believe that there are all these different things, different cells, different... Um, molecule, different little particles, they're called exosomes, that go from one part of your body to the other and just enters a different cell and they do different things. But usually the kind of metastasis that is that is um, kind of sleepy, if you will, is that they go to different tissues and organs and they sit there And one of my very brilliant uh, postdocs discovered that uh, these cells, these these cells that become dormant, are cancer cells that get out of the bloodstream, but because there is extracellular matrix on the blood vessels, and in particular, one molecule that is extremely important is called laminin, is one of these extracellular matrix proteins, and laminin Um, uh, sort of lines the blood vessels along with other extracellular matrix molecules. But laminin, we have shown in my lab early on that, in fact, is one of these components that when you add to a cell in a culture, it stops growing. So it has properties that allows the cells to stop growing. And if you if this, when the cells become dormant, is because they're sitting on the lining of the blood vessel that has laminin in it. And so these tumor cells come out and they sit there dormant. So he made a very nice model for dis- discussing and understanding dormancy. Very proud of my students and postdocs. Well, this sounds, this is basic scientific research. Is there anything that we can take from what you know now to put into practice to help patients That's presently? a brilliant question. So um, I'm very proud to tell you that one of the very early um, work that I did, starting even in 1975, is that these extracellular matrix molecules have receptors on the cell surface. This wasn't known. And, you know, I basically proposed it theoretically, and then other people have, were working in their own lab, and they began to discover these particular receptors, and they're called integrins. And, uh, and this is a name that one of the professors later on gave to, to the collective uh, body of the, of, the, of the receptors. And what we find 
is that a particular receptor of integrin called beta-1 inhibitory activity of the, of the integrin, um, because you can make an antibody against the integrins that misbehave and make the cell to lose its structure. So we have discovered this, that it has the ability to down-modulate the level and probably also the architecture or the shape of the receptors and make them think they are normal. So in my work, we have shown that in three-dimensional culture, which I developed years ago in 1992 together with, well, the first one was in my lab and it was on the mouse, but the human one was uh, developed with a colleague at Denmark, Ole Peterson, and we uh, made a very interesting assay where the normal cells put in this three-dimensional matrix of the same mouse, they are able to make milk in 3D, while if you put them flat, they don't. So it says that the context of the breast is crucial. So we develop a context that thought it was in the breast. And so the cells started making milk in mouse. In human, it's a little bit more complicated, but even in human, they make a beautiful architecture of the breast. And then we showed that the tumor cells make the architecture of a tumor in this gel of extracellular matrix. So it sounds like uh, what you've discovered may open up new uh, ways to sort of um, medications that might manage cancer as opposed to destroying it? Uh, Well, you need both. I mean, you know, usually the main tumor can be taken out. But on the other hand, you have these cells that sit around or also they run in your blood vessel, etc. So it would be nice to have adjuvant therapy. And these things have been around for a while, but, but we now have shown in a series of studies with the mouse, that when you use the beta-1 integrin inhibitory antibody together, say, with radiation and put human tumors into the mouse, if you normally have to kill them by eight gray of radiation, when you add this antibody, you only need two. And that is wonderful because, you know, imagine of the women who may not lose uh, their hair, etc. And this just begun clinical trial. So a a company got formed on the basis of the work that we had done with my colleagues. And uh, they they bought the patent and they now are doing it in Connecticut. Uh, They just went into clinical trial and I'm very pleased. And the whole uh, scientific area or even... um, uh, venture capitalists have gotten very interested in this because it has so much promise to be given together with these other things and then have things do the right thing. Well, very interesting. Thank you so much to Dr. Mina Bissell, the Distinguished Senior Scientist and a Senior Advisor to the Laboratory Director at the Lawrence Berkeley National Laboratory in Berkeley, California. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's podcast and talk show, HealthLink on Air. And now, Deirdre Nealon, editor of Upstate Medical University's Literary and Visual Arts Journal, The Healing Muse, with this week's selection. Why do people write? What is it we hope to keep or discover or destroy? Kathleen Kramer and Terry Martin offer us two distinct answers to those questions. Kramer is a retired library director from the Finger Lakes. Here is her poem, Without This Poem. If I didn't have this poem to write, I might not have heard the fledgling hidden there in the long grass, begging. I wouldn't have seen in my mind its feathers, soft and speckled, puffing out with each cry for more, more. The tiny white butterfly would have danced through the air and rested on the gravestone of Lewis McWhorter without my notice. And later, at the bedside of my dying friend, When the light made a nimbus of her thinning hair, 
I could have lost forever that vision. Terry Martin lives on the other side of the, of the country in Yakima, Washington. He has three poetry books, most recently The Light You Find. Here is his poem, Journal, which talks about why he writes. Junk drawer, hope chest, lost and found, a mirror, a touchstone, an ear. Silo, storing chaff and grain together, trusted compass pointing true north, private fort, keep out. Plucked string, reverberating truth, garden where seeds are planted, weeds allowed. An anchor, reeled in, hand over hand, dragging rusty things up from dark waters. Crutch to prop me up so I can limp ahead one halting step at a time. A bridge, spanning the distance between where I am and where I want to be. A crackling fire, when tended, it warms my world with its flames. A witness, a deeper, truer friend, a home I carry with me, my own unassailable sanctuary. This has been Upstate's HealthLink on Air, brought to you each week by Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York. Next week on HealthLink on Air, what's behind the dwindling life expectancy in the United States? If you missed any of today's show, listen on our website at healthlinkonair.org or do a podcast search for the phrase HealthLink on Air. I'm Amber Smith, thanking you for listening.